Welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peacock. Pedro Sierra is a BJJ black belt instructor, kickboxing coach, and owner of Sierra MMA in Utah. But more importantly, Pedro is a normal guy just like you who teaches and trains martial arts. Unlike most teachers, however, he has taken the leap into CLA and fast begun to restructure his programs with near immediate positive student feedback and results. At the time of this recording, Sierra MMA is just over a month into its adoption of the constraints-led approach to training. In this episode, Pedro walks us through how he found the ecological approach, what convinced him to change to the constraints-led approach slash ecological approach, what he's done to restructure his classes along ecological lines, and the challenges he's run into, how he solved them, and problems he's still working on. This is an excellent example of how virtually anyone can implement CLA into their martial arts programs, and it can be done in a short amount of time too. Just takes a little thoughtfulness and a little know-how. So if you're excited to jump in, hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. Could you go ahead and introduce yourself and your martial arts background? Absolutely. Uh, My name is Pedro Sierra. Uh, I've been doing martial arts for probably 30 plus years. I uh, did a couple of years of boxing when I was a kid, about 13 years of karate. Um, I got a black belt in judo. I've been doing Muay Thai for probably 15 years and uh, jiu-jitsu for about almost 27. Awesome. So the, the reason why I had you on is because you started experimenting as a lot of people are now in the last year or so with the constraints led approach and like ecological approaches in general. So how did you first hear about ecological psychology and um, CLA? I uh, it actually popped up on my Instagram feed for Greg Souders. So his uh, jujitsu program, he had a couple of things that were, he talked about, um, here's a series of games you can play. And then at the end, he said something that oftentimes can be considered inflammatory is like, don't ever drill again or something to that effect. Don't waste your time yeah. drilling. Which I was like, okay, if you're going to make, if you're that confident to make that statement, that's something worth uh, at least taking a look at. Right. Yeah. Um, so I started looking at his stuff and then I contacted him and talked to him about it. He recommends some books, uh, which I'm, I haven't finished yet, but I'm still working on working my way through to, uh, to just be educated about what I'm trying to do. Sure. Which, which books are those? I probably have those. Uh, the Rob Gray, uh, how, do, how We Learn to Move, and then the Introduction to Ecological Learning or Ecological Psychology, I think. That one's a little bit heavier. Oh, okay. so I with the- yeah, so that one I don't have. But I read, the, um, I read Gibson's work. Gibson's the one who created Ecological Psychology. So I have his work, which is not easy, <laughs> as you can probably expect. Um, but... Yeah, I haven't got to that one yet. I've heard it's really good. Cool. The, I've I've gone through a couple of chapters. It just it's a uh, it's a little bit more technical, which is mm-hmm. fine. It just takes a little bit of work. Sometimes I have to research some of the words or the meanings of the of the phrases that they use. But they actually yes. do I mean, so far. They do a really good pr- uh, job of helping you understand what it is that they're talking about. Yeah, the the importance of that is like if you get that book, an introduction to ecological psychology. You're really, you're not, you're not going to find stuff about practice design. You're not going to, you know, you're, what you're learning about is all the theory that goes underneath what we do in the constraints led approach. 
how we view yeah. perception and why it's important that we practice the way we practice. We're not just saying, oh, you have to just spar all the time because we just want to spar all the time. We're saying it because, well, we, we're not really saying spar all the time, but live yeah. practice. We're saying yeah. live practice all the time because there's a specific, there's a way in the, which we view how movement emerges and how perception works that undergirds yeah. that. Well, that, that point I think is about sparring or live practice, I think is oftentimes misunderstood by people. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I've heard it a couple other times on your on a number of different podcasts where people are saying, well, beginners can't spar. We're not asking them to spar. We're asking them to use either full or modified resistance in a very specific manner for a very specific mm -hmm. task so that they can find out how to be successful in that specific, within that specific environment. Mm -hmm. Which is totally different than just full sparring. Yeah. It's always live, but not always full intensity or the entire breadth of, of the game. Yeah. Um, it's not always free sparring. So people, when they say sparring, they think mostly of like free sparring. Um, or maybe positional sparring, but mostly free sparring. Cool. And that's what so, I thought it was. At first. I thought it was just positional sparring, but it's actually, it seems to me to be quite a bit more refined, at least the way that I understood it or I practice it. Positional sparring, okay, either, like I had old coaches would be like, okay, start in triangle and go, which is okay, but there was never any follow-up about here's how you defend mm -hmm. or here's how you finish. It's just mm -hmm. ready, go, and then figure it out on your own. And it was the entire rolling session as opposed to let's put some constraints on it so that we can then develop specific skills for finishing or escaping. Absolutely. That. And you just touched on something there. It's actually an important part of why constraints-led approach is different. I think that's underappreciated is the variability. So you don't just, a class usually does have a focus, but you don't just do the same defense, the same, you know, whatever, the entire class. You, you're supposed to be going to, through different things and, and approaching things from different perspectives for a lot of reasons. First, it's better for learning, but second, it also helps you not have overuse injuries, right? If you do something for the entire class, all you do, like I, we used to do this with um, a spider guard grip breaks and stuff. We just spent the whole class doing it. And uh, we How did positional sparring with it. Oh, I, I, I had chronic pain and it took probably six months for it to go away because we just did that for a whole month and I just, it, it, it just wouldn't go away. Like it, it took a long time to heal. Um, and you can avoid that. It's, it's almost like magic. If you you can avoid that by just doing different things things throughout class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, so, go yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm listening. Okay. Well, I wasn't going to explain anything. I was going to ask a question, so I wanted to hear okay. what you had to say. <laughs> the the different things in class, I kind of like that. Now, it's only within the last month and a half that I've worked with the constraints-led approach. Mm -hmm. And because I'm not that educated, I kind of use other, I just basically copied what Greg did, right? Uh -huh. uh, here's something that he showed. All right, I'm going to test it out myself and then I'm going to have my students do it. I initially started, we have like 90-minute classes. So the first mm -hmm. hour was those three games switching between partners after every top and bottom. So we do three of the first game or two of the first game, get a new partner. Okay, uh, now we're going to do the second game. Uh, each time we have a new partner, and then the third game we'll do it each time we have a new partner. More recently, I've switched to the first half of the, the first hour. So the first 30 minutes is the initial game for this week. 
This week it was um, separating the arms from mount. Uh, the second half was what we did last week, which was half guard. Pass the half guard, sweep, or put them in guard. I think that's a better way to do it because, one, it keeps the student's attention. It keeps them focused on a new task for those 30 minutes. So that sometimes people get bored, right? But it also helps reinforce the skills or the understanding that they developed from the last week, and they bring it into this week's practice. Yeah. Again, I have, to, I have to tweak it for sure, but that's a, it seems to be working better and I'm getting better, more positive responses this week than last week. Yeah. That's, that's something that is, um, there's just so much. So we go, we, we start, there's one layer of the constraints load approach that we're trying to get people to understand. And then they understand that. And then there's the next layer. Like there needs to be more variability. There needs to be, oh, actually, repetition is important, but not in the way that we normally do it. So we're not repeating the solution, but you've got to repeat the position. You've got to repeat the problem. And if you, and if you don't repeat the problem again for a month and you don't come back around. <laughs> so that, that's something that really attracted me to the constraints-led approach is that we, even though we have very reduced parameters, one, they mentioned it, but also I, I observed it, that you never see the same thing twice. You might see a similar response, but the weight, flexibility, strength, uh, and my own understanding of what uh, connections or I think they call them affordances that are available in that environment mm -hmm. will change almost each time because the person on top is going to have a different reaction because they're trying to evolve their skill. And the person on the bottom is going to have a slightly different reaction because they're trying to evolve or counter the skill of the person on top. I had one coach one, one time do the summer of 10,000 arm locks. That means every class you did a hundred arm locks. At the time, I didn't have any clue. And that seemed like, oh yeah, we're going to get really good at arm locks. But I'm not so sure that we were any better at the end than we were at the beginning. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> I would agree with that. Were not I didn't live, know that right? then. Say it again. They weren't live, right? They were just like regular repetitions. No. Yep. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's very useful. Um, but people think they get the 10,000 hour rule in their head. They get the 10,000, 10,000 hour becomes 10,000 reps. And then it's, it's a mess. Um, I, but now yeah, I, I, would, I, I read, I think it's the talent code and outliers mm -hmm. or uh, the one that saw talent is a myth. I think that's what it's called, which I thought at least at the time, made perfect sense. You do this more, you're going to be better at this. Mm -hmm. And uh, hearing some of the arguments against uh, constraints-led approach, you can't really deny that the top players right now who the majority are using the information processing method are successful. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you can't gain skill from that method. Mm -hmm. I just don't know that as a, as a coach, if I'm going to give my students the best opportunity to learn and remember feeding them information as opposed to them failing and finding a solution, I think the second option is way more, has way more longevity for them to remember and to be able to input it into their game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it helps you build a more adaptable game up front rather than waiting you go through all the drills, you go through all the basics, and then you start sparring. And then over a long period of time, you your game opens up. 
your game is kind of open already when you start the CLA, even if you're a day one white belt, right? You're, you're, you're forced in different positions. You're forced in, um, to, to try and adapt something to, to compensate for the problems you're put into. And, um, the, the thing with the, the top athletes is a lot of these coaches are, are intuitively doing things that are really useful, the way they coach, some of the exercises they put together. And then there's just so much training volume that they get probably more live play than anybody else who does it amateur or whatever. So it almost doesn't matter. You can do all the other cool drills and everything, but they're getting so much live play that it almost doesn't matter because like what what do you what do you which which part do you attribute the skill to? Are you right. attributing it to this or are you attributing this? There's no way to control for it. And so I come up from a particular theoretical perspective and I think that they're getting they're so good because they've just been able to play the game so much, not necessarily because you know, rote repetitions and drilling is is contributing so deeply to their their um elite performance that makes sense yeah especially professionals that work that are training two or three times a day seven days a week they have Absolutely. to have an incredibly high volume of actual live training mm -hmm. and to avoid injury they have they they have to work out but they also want to avoid injuries so some of that volume is going to be taken up by you know, weird conditioning drills and um, kicking drills or, you know, whatever the sport is, kicking drills, throwing drills, dribbling drills, because if all they ever do is play the live sport, then they won't be able to recover. So I don't know. There probably needs to be a recalibration of uh, professional sports on that level, but. Um, At least yeah, for jujitsu. Yeah, especially for jujitsu. So how has your program in class changed so far? So you said you've only done it about a month and a half so far. What, how's it changed from before you started to after you started experimenting? Um, well, before I was pretty traditional. I didn't like warm-ups already. Uh, I didn't like mm -hmm. the shrimp and the bridge and the roll and the break fall. Yeah. So we did away with that. Um, but I would do things like, you know, find four inside positions and run through that twice uh, for leg entanglements. And then we'll use that an actual, at least movements that, I, that were closer to live action than uh, the roll and the bridge and the shrimp. At least that was my perception. Um, and then I would teach a regular class of here's a technique, here's a series of techniques that connect one to the other, and then we're going to roll for 30 or 40 minutes at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, I pretty much have thrown all that away. Mm -hmm. And the warm-ups now are grip fighting games. Every class starts with grip fighting, maybe finding double unders, maybe finding a body lock, um, maybe adding a single leg connection, but all of it is live resistance. And then we go into the games of the day, which for this week, it's, you know, separate arms from the mount, find the shoulder line. Uh, last week was half guard pass or pass the side controller mount, the bottom person sweep, or put them in the guard. So that means that they have at least 60 full minutes before free rolling of live action. Hmm. So I believe as a coach, I'm giving them more of what they are looking for with this approach than with, do the, here's the technique, do a few reps, come on back in, I'm seeing a common problem, here's the correction, let's do it again. Uh, and then we do 30, 40 minutes of roll at the end. So I'm, they're getting a, a much better workout 
I believe that the workout is, or the work that they're doing is more targeted to the sport we're trying to play. Mm-hmm. More actual failure and some success, which leads to more questions or more thought, at, at the very least, thought on their part, which drives them towards progress. And that's progress. really what I care about. And engagement, which is good for business too. But yeah, it's mostly and they, good like, for learning. Yes, the like I want I want them to under, to feel like they're getting something out of what when they come to class, um, but it's been actually a little bit surprising how much people enjoy this type of training. Yeah, some of the guys like I'm 53. There's some guys that are similar to my age, or some guys that are a little bit injured, and some of the ladies are a little bit smaller, and they're like, "Man, I cannot roll for you know 40 minutes with all these big 200 plus dudes." But they can do the games with nearly everyone because there is minimized risk for injury because the spectrum of crazy movements or uneducated movements is very limited, which is just better for longevity and better for all of my students to engage in skill learning as opposed to just rote repetition. Absolutely. That's awesome. So... How have your beliefs about the nature of learning and tra- training changed since you were exposed to the ecological concepts? Well, it's pretty much thrown what I what I used to believe in the trash. I was <laughs> I was very I, like, I believe that information processing, even though I didn't know what that 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 term, I believe yeah. that the coach teaches, the students drill it, and then we try and apply that thing in training, which is frankly hard to do if you're not a little bit more advanced or quite a bit more advanced than your training partner because they're generally not going to let you put it. They've also just spent the last hour learning the same thing that you did so they know what's coming, so they're going to defend it. Yeah. So it's harder to get actual live practice Mm -hmm. because of that scenario, right? In this scenario, there's two things that have happened. One, I actually coach less during class but I spend way more time researching prior to class so that I can yes. find, right? I can find the right games or the right constraints to help them develop a certain skill that I'm looking for them to be, to, to progress it, right? So it's kind of flipped because I have the knowledge in my head of what I do. I could teach them a technique with very little thought or, or, or uh, preparation. In this, uh, system of teaching, I have to do a lot of prep. Not that it's like an overly uh, 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 too much, but I have to put thought into how to get them to a place where their skill is improved in this specific area. And then how do I connect those areas week by week so that we're making progress in as a whole, as opposed to leg locks for this class, takedowns for this class, and um, guard passes for this class. Absolutely. I'm glad that you touched on how much work you do before the class. It's not an oppressive amount of work, but it's certainly more. A lot of instructors, and I was this way too when I used to teach Taekwondo, they'll just walk on the mat and be like, all right, I've done this enough. We're just going to do class. I'm just going to feel out class today and we're just going to work on whatever I feel like. Um, Whereas when you do the constraints led approach, it is individualized, but it is, you're putting work in in before the class to come up with the right constraints, the right games, the rules, 
the things that are going to help people move their games in the right direction versus just just winging it. Um, and, and winging it usually means we have to fall back on drills and <laughs> and repetitions. Um, and that's really important. It is. It, it, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Coaching is more than just what you do on the mat, online during the during the process. It's what you do before and after as well. Um, and this is not something I've released yet. I'm still writing on it and, and stuff like that. But um, it's a, a tool that I want to help instructors and coaches kind of understand the constraints that approach to coaching better is what I call the 3D model of coaching, which is to design. And that's what you're, that's the process that you're talking about. You're doing the research, you're thinking, you're like, what are the constraints, what are the game rules and stuff that are going to really help these sort of solutions emerge? That's the design process. And then there's direct, right? That's where you're coaching, you're directing their attention where, where they need to put their attention to help them organize themselves better. And that might include instruction too, but sometimes you don't have to instruct. You just, you kind of tell them where to be, where to focus their attention at. And then there's dissect. And that's where you ask the questions and you get people thinking in about their, critically about their own game is kind of unpacking what's going on and where they need to move so they can kind of take responsibility and begin to, you know, I'm doing at least two of those. I think I'm doing the first one and the last one. I don't know if I'm doing yeah. as well in the middle because mm -hmm. what we'll do is we'll do like last night, we did 30 minutes of the um, Mount drill. And then I was like, okay, what's working from the bottom. And they, people gave me a list of what things, okay, this, or you got shoulder mm -hmm. pressure, or Hey, you got to control the far shoulder or you got to look for the space inside the elbow. Okay, good. All right. What we'll work from the top? All right. We have to have this and that. And so it was good that the class as a whole hears the things that are working for their partners. Mm. So that when yeah. we do it again this week, they can maybe, and I've left it up on the board, they can see what it is that they have to focus on. So I think the design and the dissect, I'm fairly, you know, at least I'm trying to do those. The direct, um, every once in a while, I will stop. Okay, you guys, we have to talk about, I think they call them invariants, right? You need a butterfly hook to be able to extract your knee. You need head and arm control. You need to get their shoulders flat. You got to move across the hips to keep their hips flat. These are the things that are going to help you be successful. Not necessarily what the technique is to be successful, but here are the, the tools that you need to apply in order to find those techniques or those movement solutions, right? Right. Excellent. I love the idea of like after an exercise, hey, what's working for you? And then everyone's like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And then people are thinking, first of all, they're thinking critically about their own performance, but then everyone else is kind of, oh, okay, so there's, here's what's working for this person, here's what's working for this person. And there might be a specific reason why something's working because of their, organ their body constraints. They're, something might work better because this person's larger or longer, and some something else might work better because they're smaller. But there's some things that don't really change. Like you need to get you need to get your legs in front of, you know, your shins in front of somebody. You need to get the elbow and the, the, um, the arm across the, you know, the waist or something, you know, depending on the, where you're trying to get out of. Um, but that, I really do like that idea. And then you have kind of a spaced learning effect that comes into play where we're going to revisit this next week. But even though I have, you know, here's, here's some of the sort of invariant sort of features that seem to be working no matter what. 
when you practice it, you have to kind of go through that mistake again and remember it again. And that actually enhances learning when you kind of have an idea of what you need to do, but you can't reproduce it perfectly. Being reminded of what you have to do to organize yourself properly, again, you get it, it actually makes the learning better. It makes it more adaptable. So I really like that. Yeah, we uh, one of the things that I'm finding or I'm getting as a result of this is way more questions. Hey, coach, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I didn't know anything about this position. What they usually say is <laughs> I didn't realize it's so bad, right? Um, because we're seldom put in those scenar- in those very limited scenarios. Mm-hmm. So the person on the bottom and the person on, on top will have a whole plethora of things available to them. But if we narrow that down to only sweep and only put them in the guard, you can't have any submissions. You can't have any back takes. You can't even... Uh, you, or you can, on the top, you can't pass. You just have to keep them from putting you in the guard. But like, man, I, I didn't, I didn't know how to control someone. I didn't know that I, I could not pin someone from this position, which forces, hopefully, forces thought about how to do that better. Uh, I was talking to a student uh, last week about really, we only learn for the most part when we fail. So if we put you in environments where you have you have no choice but to fail, then you start to gain personal accountability and personal responsibility for your progress. Oftentimes, as me as a coach, I'll see, I'll put a lot of effort into teaching someone a specific technique, and then it's just not important to them, or they don't feel it's important, or they don't feel like they can be successful with it, so they discard it. Okay, I can understand that, but that's not helpful in me teaching, but it may have been more the way that I'm teaching as opposed to them not being that interested. With this uh, constraints-led approach, they are 100% invested in winning. Mm -hmm. Every person wants to win that particular three-minute round, right? So the things that are working, they're going to try on the next person. So they're invested in them getting better and finding the things, or what do we call them, affordances, that they can connect to to make them successful or them effective, mm-hmm. which for me is pretty exciting because that means they're going to yeah, grow absolutely. faster. Absolutely. Yeah, where they understand when and where they can move, things just open up. And if they have permission to fail, they're going to be more creative. And eventually things will, will stabilize. And they'll be really, really, really good. They'll be ahead of anyone that's at their level at other academies. That's what Greg Souders has found. That's what uh, my friend Scott Seawright from Primal MMA He's found that as well, is that they just, the adaptability and the creativity of, of building, coming up through the constraints-led approach is just unmatched. I mean, he's got lower belts, blue belts and purple belts, I think, at least purple belts, I think, that are just trashing 15-year black belts in his area. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, which I'm trying happen. to, well, I'm trying to take a trip out there in August and I'm, I'm expecting some very difficult rounds, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what are you working on right now? Like what, what challenges are you having with applying the constraints-led approach? Because there is no, there's no one or perfect way to do it. And we're always, I'm working through things. I don't really teach that much anymore, but I'm always working through problems. My friends are working through problems. Um, so what are you working on right now? Well, the first one is designing the game. Mm-hmm. The, that's the, the, right now the most important one. The second focus that I have is at what type of results am I seeing 
because of the games we're playing. Part of it, I try to talk about, okay, what are you guys seeing? So instead of me telling them or me observing what their, their, uh, what their progress is, although that's part of what I do, more it's what are you finding from this practice? And that's where we get, okay, this works, this works. I tried this that the other guy did, and when he did to me, I couldn't do it to him. And then we can have a conversation about, okay, let's think about what it is. Are you claiming the inside space? Are you applying correct Kazushi? Are you playing multiple Kazushis? Are you uh, trying to use too much strength? Do you not have the right frames? So we can bring those conversations back, at least for me, back to the concepts that are consistent throughout all of jujitsu. And then how do we apply those concepts into the games? So I'm not telling you the technique to use, but I'm giving you the tools to find the technique through live practice. Absolutely. Cool. One awesome. of the, the uh, so I was taught my, my, uh, one of my coaches was taught in the old Brazilian way, right? A, a guard pass, psychotrol, arm lock, and uh, choke from the back. Mm-hmm. Very disjointed. Uh, one of my coaches started to put things, string them together. So like groups of three. So you had a series of things to work. One thing that was never communicated, at least to me, was any of the concepts. So when Dan Hart started releasing his, uh, his instructionals and his students, I spent probably way too much money on them, but what I, what I ended up was finding a framework for jujitsu by piecing together the different comments they made and they were consistent throughout almost all of their, uh, instructionals was the central hub of offensive cycle. Hmm. Initially, I had a guard player framework, a guard passer framework, a top pin framework, and a bottom pin framework. And that's, to be honest, what I made one of the requirements for my, to become a blue belt. You had to understand at least one of those frameworks to be able to affect, to to have a decision-making process, right? Mm -hmm. So when I got here, that's what I was teaching, primarily concepts. And then here's a technique that correlates to the concept that we're, that I'm trying to, 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 to share with you. More recently, we have, through like trial and error and some communication, narrowed it down to a central hub of offensive cycle. And then there's four avenues to get to the offensive cycle. Top pin, bottom pin, guard player, guard pass. So the only variant is the way that we get to or the setup in the entry into the offensive cycle, because that should be where we spend the most amount of time for the, mm-hmm. uh, and as often as possible. And that's not my information. That's something that Danaher made. I'm just, I put it in a way that I could communicate it to our students. With the constraints-led approach, those concepts often emerge like inside position. The most basic concept in all of jiu-jitsu. If you don't know what to do, find inside position, mm-hmm. either on top or on bottom. So that when we have, say, uh, a game of Kazushi, I have a leg entanglement, I'm trying to knock you over, you're trying to strip the grips and stay on top. The only way to be successful with Kazushi is to find an inside position. So even though I'm not communicating those words, they're finding it by either failure or success. So that progression from old school to slightly advanced to concept to uh, constraint-led approach, for me, is really exciting because the concepts that I want them all to understand are coming out of 
live practice every class. Absolutely. And having that that high level understanding is really important, I think, for you as a coach. Just understand what does jujitsu boil down to? Because that will help you know where to put your attention when you're designing the games. Um, yeah. And you mentioned uh, just find find inside position, find inside position. That could be an example of directing that that middle D in the three D approach. Um, that makes sense. The, your attention is directed towards a sort of objective. Um, there's another layer of it too, like external cueing that's more complicated. But um, I'm trying to get a guest on so we can talk about that. But uh, but but in, if it's just, it, it could be as, as simple as look for inside position. You know, keep the leg in here, keep the arm in here. Um, that you know, and that could be all you need to say in order to help somebody open up to the next level of of skill in their practice. Yeah, it's a it's a cue I use all the time because, especially with beginners, that we have a tendency to grab someone and hold on hold them on top of us. But that's really helping the person on top, right? Mm-hmm. So if we talk about find inside position, explain what it is, and then, okay, are you inside or outside? Well, I'm outside. Well, is that helping you? No. Okay, how do I get inside position? Okay, here's some things that you could use. But really, just find a way to get your knees and your elbows inside the space between their neck and hips, and then you will have inside position, both top or bottom. Okay? That has that, And that was before our constraints-led approach. We had really good success helping people understand the basic concept of jujitsu without knowing any technique. And for us, that was really exciting because they made significant progress in a shorter amount of time, at least than the way that I had been taught or that I had been teaching. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So what would you say to people who are sort of considering the ecological concepts, but they're they're like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't, I don't know if I want to try this or not. I don't want to dive in. What would you say to them? Test it on your kids. Okay. Because the kid, we dealt with, I've done away with, for the most part, technical training for the kids and just had them play games. They have come up with some stuff that I'm like, I never taught you that. I never taught you the body lock off of uh, escaping a single leg. We just started teaching what the single leg is they're going to come up with way more creative ways because they're not constrained by what they see or what someone else tells them or their experience in life. They don't know nothing. So when something happens, they come up with something. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But because they always want to win, especially as kids, (laughs) they are always going to find the thing that works best for them. Now, me personally, I was just like, okay, we're going to give it a try. So every class is going to be constraints learning uh, led approach. But if you're worried about it, I would say try it with the kids first. That's good. I've I've heard some people saying that they were going to try it with their kids first or that they did try it with the kids first. So I think that's a good onboarding ramp if you're not willing to take the jump <laughs> and go to the adult class, which I think is a limiting belief. I think you can definitely just start going with the adult class um, and start making Pretty mistakes. Good. Guys, you're going to make mistakes. Just start making them. <laughs> okay, so that's I've I've tried to be a coach that says you're going to fail, you're going to fail. That's okay. That just means you're trying to apply something new into a scenario that you already have a set set of answers, or you you think you have a set set of answers. I'm asking you to include this into that, and it always fails. 
for myself included. But if we find a scenario, this, these games that allows them, allows them to fail repeatedly without the, the stress of like losing, they're not getting tapped or they're not getting dominated, then they are more likely to fail, which in, at least in my opinion, they're more likely to grow or have the opportunity for progress. Absolutely. And, he, and as a coach, like you're going to, as a coach, you're going to, stuff's not going to work. You just have to yeah. be. It's not going to work the way you imagined it. The class is going to be this or that way. You're going to need the feedback of your students. You're going to need other coaches that have been there before. You're going to need to keep thinking and challenging yourself. You're going to make mistakes as a coach too, putting together des practice designs. Just start making the mistakes. If you want to be better, if you want to start doing constraints-led approach, don't let your ego get in the way. Don't let your fear get in the way. People aren't going to start snapping their knees off and their shoulders aren't going to explode and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Just make mistakes and fix them. That's just do it. <laughs> yeah. I think I heard one of your, uh, one of your guests say coaching, how do you learn to be a coach using the ecological system, trying to teach the ecological system? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm kind of, kind of having to do that, right? I'm, I'm yeah. giving myself parameters for a technique or a set of skills that I want them to, to learn. And then I'm doing it, and then that wasn't what the result I wanted, although it was a positive result. It's not the specific one I wanted. Okay, how do I rearrange that so that I can do fail again or be successful again? Yeah, it's funny because there's just not a lot out there for combat sports. Um, there's more, obviously. I'm producing content. But there's just not a lot out there for, for how to apply the ecological approach to combat sports. And so you're forced to figure things out like like you're doing the ecological approach as a coach. Yeah. Um, and I think it does work when when you, as a coach. Um, but you just it's great to have somebody there who can direct your attention instead of necessarily just giving you the answer. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's just how it works. That's how learning works, really, to be honest with you. I think a lot of the instruction gets in the way sometimes. Yeah, and that's like that's something I I kind of think about like Man, how how much more effective could I have been if I would have tried this sooner or learned it earlier? It's just you know, it's not a it's not something I can change. But I'm looking forward yeah. to the results that our team can get from using this type of method. Yeah, but there are some other like I've talked to other black belts about it, and some of them like that's that doesn't make any sense. Like okay, no problem. You do you. I'll try and figure that's out what fine. I'm doing over there. Give it five or six years, you'll be reaching out again. Yeah, and it's popular, yeah. and everybody's doing right? it. Yeah, <laughs> it was really, I really heartened to hear uh, Craig Jones, um, mm -hmm. Nikki Ryan, and J Rod were on uh, Lex Friedman, and yeah. Craig uses a constraints-led approach in when he teaches. I'm like, okay, if he's doing, I'm probably doing something similar or something right. I'm on the right mm -hmm. track. Um. Danaher uses sim seemingly a very different method, uh, but I might gravitate towards Craig Jones a little more than John Danaher, although I've learned a lot from John. That's, I don't want to take that yeah. away from him at all. Yeah, John's good on the understanding, the propositional understanding, which is what I view that as is like the idea of like, what is a play? What, what is a play in like football? You know, we, we're going to put together a play is that an example of the information processing approach kind of rearing its head again, or 
How does that fit in with the ecological approach? And my my view of a play is that nobody's gonna nobody's gonna run all the, per, the positions in a play perfectly. It's not gonna go the way the play was built. What a play does is it directs your attention and it gives you an objective. That's what it does. And so what what Danaher does is he uh, he levels up your understanding of the game and gives you a structure to work within when you're putting together games. And that that's that's a way of directing the attention. It's not a way of making you like even Danaher himself is like, dude, if you're like technique based, like you're just trying to learn all the techniques and you're doing your drill. Like he said that people that drill to have perfect technique are dumb <laughs> because that's not what that's for. In his right. Mind. It's like, <laughs> so I, I think even he's not necessarily, yeah, he's not constraint sled, but he's not quite, he's not quite totally the traditional approach either. So he's still probably yeah. information processing, but he's somewhere in that, that no man's land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the things that, that uh, Greg Souders pointed out uh, in one of his uh, podcast interviews was Danaher did a, an excellent job of pointing out the central problem for a, let's say, submission or a position. And from that central problem, you can then fight back, you know, what do you call it, reverse engineer the skills that you need to be able to be successful in that position, that submission. And that's one way to develop games or design games so that we can come out with those effective or uh, movement solutions, right? Yeah. So that's, that's something that I've had to revisit. Or what do I understand about this position or this submission? What are the central problems? And then how do I come design a game that helps the students combat that central problem? Which I'm not going to lie, is a little bit of work. It's a little bit of work. It is. But it's interesting work. Um, yes, it is. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. It's interesting. Um, my coach has started to play with this stuff. He's doing a great job with it. And he said that, you know, changing to toward, because I don't think he's entirely bought in yet, changing toward a constraints led approach. And his, his class structures totally changed since the last, since when I started there. Um, we just, we don't, we used to do a little bit of shrimping, not much, and a little bit of bridging without, we don't do any of that. We just start with the game immediately. Um, and instruction is way down and we just do tons of live practice. But, um, um, yeah, I just lost my train of thought. What was I talking about? <laughs> I got off on a tangent there about, um, he was getting really good. Oh, at we're it. talking about central problems of a technique and how to design the skills based on the central problem. Yeah, absolutely. Putting together the games has been is is, is, a, is a constant battle because you can you can understand a position like broadly speaking from a positional sparring. Positional sparring is very broad, but then you have little embedded skills in there. You're talking about reverse engineering, and how do you get to those skills by you know tinkering with the constraints and stuff? Um, it, it's so I, I've been putting a lot of thought into it too. And it's just, um, and my coach as well. And it's, there, there are ways to do it, but you have to, you have to understand how to scale up and down. Um, and so if you can identify an embedded skill, something that gets you to the broad objective sweeping, you know, those sorts of things, 
um, then you could put together stuff where you can just kind of camp. Um, for example, you're talking about some of your grip fighting games. That's a great example of that, where you're just fighting to maintain a connection. Or a dominant connection. So we don't have, mm -hmm. we have a couple of wrestlers in here, but most people have zero wrestling. So yeah. if I start with a single leg, that's cool, but they don't know how to get to the single leg. They don't understand the, the precursor, which is grip fighting for every single grappling in, engagement, right? I have to be able to fight the grips so that I can dominate the grips or con so that I can control them so I can find access to the hips or the leg. Right. But if we spend no time on the actual grip fighting, if that's the, what we spend the least amount of time on, we're going to struggle the most trying to find entry into the thing that we actually want, which is the legs or the hips. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the big thing. So people, people, they intuitively get, all right, dude, little games, mini games make sense. And then they have the mini games and then they jump <laughs> to either free sparring or some th like a, a slice that's too large. Uh, and there was no inner, there's no intermediate step where we actually figure out to how to find the openings and create the entries and the controls that put us where we learn yes. in the mini game. But that only comes, I agree, that only comes from that mini game. Am I grip fighting? Am I stripping the two-on-one? Am I getting head alignment, head, uh, head level the same? Am I letting them get a dominant angle? Like that, that stuff, we're going to have to take some time and do a lot of games for people to understand. And then they're going to counter each other. And that's, in my opinion, where we're going to make actual progress. First, we have to put them in a position where they understand what the mistakes are so that they can learn what the correct posture or positioning or movements are. And then we can find progress through counters or uh, defenses. We uh, have our Instagram, Sierra MMA. It's actually Sierra underscore M underscore M underscore A. Uh, but if you type in Sierra MMA, this should pop up. And then we have SierraMMA.com. Uh, that has our website. The majority of our content is on Instagram. And then they're always welcome to visit our school in Sandy, Utah. Yeah, I appreciate it, Josh. I have to say your podcast is one that I, I, I listened because I was looking for Greg Souders. And then uh, I found a whole bunch of other stuff that was really, really helpful. A lot of the conversations that you guys have had have really influenced the way that I think about or even think about to myself about how I'm approaching or if I'm approaching in the right way. Um, there was a guy you had on, he was a judo guy from North Wales. Um, super interesting. I'm going to have to listen to that a couple of times. I got to take notes on that one. And then one of my guys, yeah, super, like very, very intelligent, um, but not like in a John Danaher way, but in like a, you and me talking to each other. It was, it was very interesting to listen to. And he had a whole bunch of like, one was a skill is not technique. That was like huge for me. Skill is not technique or technique is not, technique is not skill. That's what it was. Skill is technique applied in context. That made a whole lot of sense to me. And then how do I communicate that to my students, more so my advanced students, so that they can start to see what is it they're doing? Are they developing a, a technique? Okay, how do I apply that technique to uh, the environment? Thanks so much for listening to the Combat Learning Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps us out. Finally, 
This episode, including the intro music, is produced by Micah Peacock. Thanks in advance, and I'll see you on the next episode.